Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. Bill Michalek here, and you're listening to part two of our Insectapalooza episode. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we recommend doing so. That's where we met this episode's guest, Jason Dombrowski, the collection manager and director of the Insect Diagnostic Lab at Cornell University. We took a walk on his property in central New York State, and then he gave us a behind-the-scenes tour of Cornell's insect collection. In this part, we're going to finish up our tour and then jump ahead to that same evening when we met Jason for the main event, an evening of mothing. Jason set up sheets and special lights to attract myriad night-flying insects, and then he proceeded to blow our minds with his encyclopedic knowledge of the critters who flew in, as well as the stories he shared about each of them. As in part one, you're going to hear the sound of a camera shutter at different points during the episode. When you do, it's our way of letting you know that you can visit the notes page of this episode to see pictures and videos of what we're describing at that point in the show. And don't forget that my wife and daughter joined us on this adventure, so you're going to hear their voices during the episode as well. So now let's head back to the insect collection at Cornell University and listen in as Jason takes us through the second half of our tour. Enjoy. So in here, we've got a variety of our Tedigoneids, which are katydids. And so this is a variety of species from North and Central and South America right here. Some of them are really striking though. So these are obviously well camouflaged as a leaf. Do you know if some of the color there, is that how they were at moment of capture or is this their color being lost in some way? Yeah, so green is a really hard pigment to keep. So for a lot of, the, especially the fatty insects, that green fades to yellow. So these would have mm. been brilliant green when they were fresh. Got it. Okay, and let's go, well, actually I'll show you another part of the collection that's not so showy, but really important. So we talked about how we preserve insects on slides if they're really small or insect parts on slides. Most insects are pinned as adults, but for larval insects, so insect immatures, if you put a, a pin through them, they're just gonna shrivel to nastiness. So for things like caterpillars, they are stored in ethanol. And so what we've got here is a whole bunch of different vials with caterpillars inside of them. Each of those vials has a label in it telling you where it is and what it is. And these are really useful for identification because Caterpillars are often really difficult to identify. There's a lot of different species. They're much more poorly known than the adults. And the characters you're looking at for a lot of these caterpillars are actually just fine hairs or hooks on the feet called crochets. So it's really fine characters. So when someone sends me a photo of a little green caterpillar on a leaf <laughs> that's zoomed out, so it's about, you know, just a speck, I say, that's nice. <laughs> that is a caterpillar. Wow. And yeah. you could be right on your ID, but I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So are they immediately put into ethanol? Because I remember when we did some fish preservation, we would do um, a, a mixture of formaldehyde and then we'd eventually swap them into ethanol. So you can do that, but it's less than ideal because the mm -hmm. bacteria actually stay alive in their gut for a while and uh -huh. then degrade them and turn them into really nasty brownish. Like, like some of these probably were done incorrectly. So here's some pretty big caterpillars that are kind of brownish. Mm -hmm. But what you want to do if you want ideal specimens is you get them fresh, you actually put them into boiling water for just a few seconds. Mm. And that, first of all, causes the body to distend to make it nice and straight. So you can see all the characters that you need to see. Wow. And it also kills the bacteria in their gut. And then you put them into ethanol. For us, we use 70% ethanol okay. because it keeps them somewhat pliable. Any higher percentage, they're much, more, much too brittle. Mm -hmm. But higher percentage is what you want for DNA work. Um, so okay. if you know you're going to use it for DNA work, you want to use 95 or 99%, but even better is popping in a minus 80 freezer. <laughs> so yeah, not much to look at, but it's a very cool. important part of the collection. Yeah. So now we'll go to the other room. 
I talked about freezing stuff that comes in, so here's our minus 20 freezer. No bare hands in this room. Oh, interesting. <laughs> There's a reason for that. So the people that installed this told us all kinds of horror stories about what can happen if you have bare hands in there. Because if you touch that back wall with a bare hand, you freeze to it instantly. Oh, oh gosh. And then what? Uh, right. So we always have two people in here. You're always wearing gloves. Yeah. And so here are specimens that have been put into the freezer. We put them into wheel carts, put them in the freezer, minus 20 for four days, and that should kill off all the live insects that could be in there. And it is cold. In the winter, it's not so bad because I can put my winter coat on, but in the summer in shorts, it's, it's risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in this room, we have the flies, the ants, bees, and wasps. So we're primarily built as a research collection. So yes, we do have big showy butterflies. I showed you some of those. Uh, but our specialty is people's research. So one of the former curators of the collection worked on horse flies and deer flies. So we have one of the biggest collections of those in the world. We have over half the world's species. And if I just pull some out here, wow. so you can see some with crazy long beaks. Those are probably <laughs> not used for biting mammals. They're probably mm -hmm. used for drinking nectar. This tray we're looking at, folks, there's probably several dozen specimens in here, but I see that a lot of these are different colors. So you were saying before, like what is red? Red is North America, so the oh, Arctic okay. region. Mm. Uh, yellow is neotropical, so Central and South America. Okay. So this one's mostly neotropical species, but some from Europe and Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one Australian species there. Okay, so those colors are lining the boxes, like the edge of the box. So yeah. you can quickly scan, if you got something from North America, scan the North American species cool. to help you ID things. Show you. Oh, show you this. Oh, Hymenoptera getting into oh, okay. the wasps, bees. So we show up in a cabinet and there's a whole bunch of nests in here. Hives. What we're looking at here is a whole bunch of different shapes and sizes of wasp nests. These were used in a study of the evolution of wasp nest architecture. And these are all made of chewed wood paper, wow. basically. I, I assume, I, I know that there's the sticks. It looks like they were cut so you're bringing the whole wasp nest without damaging it at all. But I also assume that if you're handling them, that you would probably need gloves or some... They're really brittle, so we try not to handle oh, them. Oh, I see. These okay. are really challenging to move. Mm. Something like this, especially with all these brittle parts. But what's amazing is that these are old. These were probably brought on a steamship over several months, maybe before the Panama Canal was dug. Wow. You know? take a long way. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so they would have brought trunks and trunks and trunks of these. Now, probably it was their servants that were doing the hard work, right. but these survived that voyage all the way back That's here amazing. before there were interstate highways, wow. before there was widespread air travel. Amazing. And it's my job to make sure that they stay there. Stay. No pressure. <laughs> Myrmacina? Yeah, so these are some of the ants. So right now I've pulled a drawer out of bullet ants, which are oh. really big. Aren't those the ones that bite and they hurt so horribly? They sting. It's uh, one or of the most sting? painful stings known. You can actually physically <laughs> see the stinger on them. So it's not a bite, it's a sting. I, I think they can probably do both. And so they would inject some sort of chemical. Um, so they're called bullet ants because apparently the, the feeling of getting stung is like being shot. <laughs> In some places they call them three sting ants because if you get stung three times you want to die. Oh gosh, <laughs> okay. I've never been stung by them. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of, my, the one of the first times I saw these, because you don't miss them, they're big ants. Mm -hmm. um, they're what, almost an inch in size? Yeah. Basically, I was sitting on a log, and this is also in French Guiana, boy, a lot of memories from there. <laughs> sitting on a log, waiting for rain to pass to go mothing, just sitting there with headlamps off at night, and, you know, thinking, huh, I should have looked before I sat down. 
And first thing I looked down and there's a possum on my lap. What? And this possum it was terrified by this headlamp suddenly in its face and just let out this shriek and then ran away. <laughs> and then I also saw that I was sitting on a bullet ant line. So they were traveling over my legs, which, you know, that's, that's harmless. But if I accidentally swatted one, that would have been a little dangerous. Oh, God. Whoa. But yeah, always look before you leave in the tropics. So well, before you put that away, though, mm -hmm. what's over here where there's all these pens and you can't see what... Yeah, so those are really small ants. Um, oh. And so for really tiny insects, we do what's called pointing. And pointing is a tiny little piece of cardboard shaped like a triangle. And then you have a little tiny dab of glue and you stick the specimen to that. Yeah, they're like these little white flags and it's just on the tip of the flag, yeah. Wow. And then if you get smaller than that, then you would typically slide mount it or preserve it in ethanol. Um, is there any other flies or wasps you see, want to see while we're here? We wanted to see the Luna, right? Oh, Luna. Oh, oh yeah. We yeah. That. It's, it's tough. I'm sure it's one of those things I'm sure on the ride home I'll be right. like, why we're didn't I ask over. about this? All right. So for Luna moth, this is one of our big showy local moths. Here's a series of them. So if I were to describe this, the wingspan is what? That's about four inches, four to five. Yeah. They're sort of this pale, ghostly bluish green. The leading edge of the wing is sort of brownish pink. There's some eye spots on each wing and there's long tails. And these tails have been shown in a recent study to actually deflect bat echolocation. Wow. And so if you clip the tails off these, they can still fly, but bats have an easier time catching them. So they do serve a purpose. And you'll see the tails do have sort of a twist in them, which mm -hmm. is probably how that functionally works. Now, Luna moths are impressive, but we can go more impressive than that. Sure. So the same genus. Wow. Here's one in Southeast Asia, where it's actually sexually dimorphic, so the males actually look completely different, and the females are quite a bit bigger, sort of that same Luna pattern. The males, though, are, are a complex pattern of yellows and browns. Uh, this is one called Actius minus, and then some of the other ones, yeah, here's Cellini, which is one you get in Asia, and it's not sexually dimorphic. And these numbers, this 1807, is that the year? So what you've got there is at the header, you'll see the name of the species. So it says Actius Cellini. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see it says Hubner. So Jakob Hubner described this species. And he described it in a publication which he did to 1806, but didn't actually come out to 1807, which is why there's square brackets. There. Got it. So this is a really complicated one. But yeah, that date just tells you the date of description. So let's say you come across a group that's not well known. You have a name there, an author in a year. You now know to look for a paper by Jakob Hubner in that year to find the description for that. And the collection could have been yesterday, but that's what the date we're seeing is the description date. Correct. Okay. The actual data collection would be on the specimen. Mm. So underneath each of these is a label that tells you, you know, date, location, collector, any other biological information that you've got. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Yeah. Wow. So this is an African one called Argema mitrii. I think these are called the comet moth. Also, yeah. long tails. These are much bigger. So this is, if I stretch my hand out, um, stretch my fingers and thumbs out, it's about that size. So it's a big moth. And it's got great big eye spots on each wings, long tails, which probably are also deflecting bat echolocation calls. Obviously popular with people for some reason. Wow. <laughs> it looks like it's painted. So the very first Luna moth my dad ever saw, he used to grab me moths from his workplace in Ontario. And some of the guys he worked with mentioned to him, oh, there's this moth you should give to Jason. <laughs> and he saw it sitting on the wall and he thought they'd drawn one on paper and cut it out. <laughs> and so he's like, ah, ha, ha, that's funny. 
and he went to hit it, and the thing fluttered. Oh, whoa! <laughs> wow. Um, how about I show you the most valuable part of the collection? Oh, awesome. yeah. Let's go this way. Okay. okay. Only VIPs get to see this room. And us. <laughs> so this room looks like nothing special, except this is our type room. And so when you describe a new species, you designate one specimen to be the holotype. And the holotype is irreplaceable. So if anybody ever has questions about a species I describe, like, what did he mean by that? They can find the holotype of that specimen wow. here. And so if you look at some of these holotypes, each one of these is a unique specimen and is priceless. So in the past, when we were looking at these drawers, it was like, there was, sometimes there's multiple per box. This one... Now there's only a single specimen per box, and that's because this is the type specimen that is the reference. Yes. Wow. So the ones that have um, two, are those male and female? So yeah, what you have there is what's called a holotype and an allotype. The allotype is basically almost as valuable as a holotype, but the opposite sex. And so if, let's say you describe a species, and it turns out you actually had two species in there and didn't realize <laughs> it. We have a new technology that discovers, okay, the ones that have this marking are one species, this one has a, that, that marking is another species. Well, which name goes with which one? You have to find the holotype, and the holotype determines which name goes where, mm. and the other one gets a new name. So yeah, these are priceless, priceless specimens. So these are sorted by author, and so we've got various beetles and moths and flies and wasps in here, wow. and the holotypes. So if someone wants to reference a holotype, do they have to come here, or like how does that work? There's several ways. So we prefer that people come here. So I do have a lot of researchers that come here to look at holotypes. But in many cases, we can often photograph it. So we've got really nice photographic equipment. We can go down to 100x. They tell us what views they need to see of it, and then we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> okay. And in many cases, sometimes they need a genitalia dissection or whatnot. If it's something that we can't do here, like they've got some advanced technique to do that I don't know how to do, we will sometimes mail it using registered mail. I'm very reluctant I was to. Say. Usually I hand carry it when I go to a meeting and someone else will be at the meeting. So like at this last meeting I was at a few weeks ago in uh, Estonia, I actually brought some holotypes with me to give to a colleague of mine in France who needed to do some dissections. I wanted him to do the dissections on these priceless specimens. You probably didn't wow. check that baggage, huh? No, I got really creative with carrying specimens and carry-on. I can bring a lot back in, in carry-on. <laughs> do you get some funny questions at security, though? Do they? I've been detained. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually there's the initial questions of bugs, why? And then you show them, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, okay. And they call their buddies over, come and have a look at it. And, yeah. and then they're like, oh, you know, I saw this caterpillar in my right. garden. <laughs> and then you know you're you're good. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, Jason, we can't thank you enough. This yeah. has been, wow, a once in a lifetime, I feel like. Right, right. And I'm looking forward to what we're going to see tonight. Let's yeah, and if anybody wants to see the insect collection, we do have a display that I mentioned. It's at the Museum of the Earth, where we pulled out about a thousand of our specimens <laughs> of just the ooh-ah stuff. So uh -huh. we've high-graded to the stuff that interests people, where... The curator of the collection, Dr. Corey Moreau, and I wrote text for a lot of it, and then our technicians pulled the specimens and arranged them in really amazing ways. So if you are in the Finger Lakes region before December, do check it out. It's, it's really quite nice. Before December 2022. Correct. Yeah. All right. And we'll put links to that on our episode notes page, too. And, and we do have a website for it, too, if you can't make it here. Oh, what's the website? 
So, well, f we do have a Cornell University Insect Collection website. If you Google that, you'll find it. Okay. Uh, but there is, the Museum of the Earth does have a website that's really quite flashy and nice for the exhibit itself. Oh, great. Yeah. So, so we'll just look up Paleontological Research Institute Six-Legged Science is the name of the exhibit. Great. Thank you. And so, with our tour complete, we spent the rest of the day exploring nearby Ithaca, New York. But as the sun started to set, we made the 45-minute drive south to a hilly, wooded road outside of Big Flats, New York. Meeting up with Jason at a nature preserve I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce. Now one thing I need to mention before we begin. As you'll hear shortly, Jason's sheets and lights brought in a large number of insects. And while we were recording, there were dozens and dozens of moths and other insects flying around us, often flying close to the mic and sometimes running directly into it. So if you hear strange sounds in the mix, thumping, buzzing, or vibrating sounds, it's likely the sound of insects coming in close for their 15 minutes of fame. And with that, let's get to the mothing. All right, folks, we are here at Staggy Hill Nature Preserve. Yes. And we have a sheet set up behind us with a vapor light. No, this one is a, <laughs> an LED light called a Lepi yeah. LED. The other one was the mercury vapor, Bill. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so we just set it up. It is about, what time do you guys think it is? 9.30 or so? Let me check. Yep, it's about 9.30. We are here on a beautiful July night. I'd say it's about, what, 70, 75 degrees, something like that. Sure. It's warm. Uh, it is July 3rd, so you're going to hear some fireworks in the background. <laughs> For uh, once, it's not people shooting. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you no may guarantees on that. <laughs> <laughs> you may also hear uh, Linda and Violet in the background. Um, they're off mm -hmm. collecting blueberries right now. Mm -hmm. But... Jason was telling us that things probably won't get going for a little bit, right? Yeah, there's a few things that come out this early, but it's going to be a trickle. I can already see a few moths and flies coming in, but things won't start happening for about another half hour until it gets really dark. All right, so we figured we'd use this time to talk a little bit about the site, about permissions that Jason has to be here, but then also Jason wanted to talk about the basics of what is a moth. Let's start with Steggy Hill. So first of all, it looks like it should be pronounced Steege Hill. It's S-T-E-E-G-E. <laughs> and I found out that the proper pronunciation is Steggy after calling it Steege Hill for about an hour in a presentation. <laughs> so Steggy Hill is not far from Big Flats or the Elmira area, southern tier of New York State. And it, as the name suggests, it is a great big hill. On one side, it faces south, and we've got some more typical southern hardwood forests like uh, oaks and, and hickories. And on the north side of the hill, we've got some more northern forests. So we've got things like white birch and eastern white pine uh, and sugar maples and red maples and things like that. So a completely different forest in just a short walk. And we've got a light setup uh, in both habitats, actually. Okay. This property is one of many owned by the Finger Lakes Land Trust. I volunteer with them doing various educational programs. So I do various moth nights or family insect walks, things like that. But if you live in the Finger Lakes area, I strongly suggest looking them up. They've got a huge number of properties with great hiking trails, and they love donations to buy up more properties. In <laughs> fact, the Finger Lakes Land Trust just purchased the largest private parcel of property on Cayuga Lake. It used to be part of, I think it was a nice egg property, and the plans were to build a nuclear power plant on it, oh, which fell through. And then it was up for sale, and luckily the Finger Lakes Land Trust was able to purchase it with some very generous donations. And so that's protected forever now. But yeah, check it. They've got a beautiful website with lots of maps of their hiking trails and their various reserves. And I should also mention, we are here at night. You're not allowed to be <laughs> on Finger Lakes Land Trust properties <laughs> at night. 
However, I have special permission to do moth research here, so uh, I can be here, but uh, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> so speaking of land trusts, we did cover, in our neck of the woods, we have the Western New York Land Conservancy, also a land trust, and we covered a lot of the great work that land trusts do in our episode where we visited the College Lodge. So if people want to know more about land trusts, not just here in New York, but all over the country, uh, check out that episode. Yeah, I guess we should talk about what a moth is. Yes. So actually, let me just pitch it at you and (laughs) and let's see if I can put you on the spot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What is a moth? Uh, A moth is not a butterfly, but a butterfly is a moth. Oh what! <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, oh god! Like, kind, you're oh, kind of correct. It's one of the. Well, I didn't. If I did, he is correct, I didn't know. I that. did have someone tell me that once. Oh wow! <laughs> so explain how, how is that kind of correct? So butterflies and moths belong to the order Lepidoptera. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lepidoptera, literally translated, means scaly wing. <laughs> and if you touch a moth or butterfly wing, or indeed their whole body, you'll get scales that rub off, and that's what creates the color patterns on their wings and on their bodies. Despite what you might have heard, if you rub the scales off the wings of moth, they still can fly. I was just going to ask <laughs> you that, yeah. To do but uh, they just look ugly because you've taken their pattern away. But yeah, if you take all the scales off a moth or butterfly, you get left with transparent wings, a shiny brown body, shiny brown legs. Like the whole thing is covered in scales, basically, hmm. to rub off. Now this elusive thing of what's the difference between a butterfly and a moth, and the short answer, there's no difference. <laughs> Butterflies are one subgroup of micromoths. Oh. In fact... Locally, there's characters to identify butterflies that are pretty reliable, but once you get into the tropics, I can't identify butterflies from moths. Mm. So butterflies are a nice little natural group that sit right in the middle of the moths. And it's really a quirk of the English language. Most languages use the same word for butterfly and moth, which is how it should be. Uh, Uh, Like in (laughs) French, it's papillon for both. In Spanish, it's mariposa. Unless you're in Central America, then they have poillas for the really tiny ones. So they get their own separate name. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's a quirk of the English language. Okay. Interesting. So it's it's not true when someone says moths come out at night and butterflies come out during the day and sometimes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or moths have showy antenna or butterflies have simple antenna. Sometimes. Right? So and locally <laughs> there are good antenna characters you can use. So for New York State, all of our butterflies have a club at the very end of the antenna. Okay. All of our moths have either a really long club that takes about half the antenna or no club at all, just a straight antenna, or a feathery antenna. Okay. So moths are everything else. Hmm. Uh, and that's partially because moths versus butterflies really outnumber them in diversity. So it's about 20 mm-hmm. to 1. Hmm. Wow. So there's, I didn't realize it was that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's probably actually quite a bit higher than that once you get an undescribed species. Okay. And, and butterflies, we used to think they're much more closely related to the big moths, the macro moths. Hmm. Turns out they, they're actually most closely related really way down on the tree. Hmm. Uh, and they're actually quite an old group. Butterflies existed before most of the big moths did. Oh, okay. And you said butterflies are more, or they're grouped with the micro moths. Yes. Oh, okay. mm, cool. So even the large butterflies, you'd still would consider them micro moths. Yeah. Right. So micro doesn't necessarily refer to overall size. Well, it's a good generalization. Right. So like <laughs> 95 plus percent micro moths are tiny and mm. 95 plus percent of macro moths are big. Right. So funny. So the, the butterflies are just weird micromoths. Right. They're, they're, they're micromoths by like phylogeny and evolution, but so many of them are so big and showy. So. Butterflies just get all the press because they're so <laughs> show offy. Yeah. And once you get into the tropics, there are some micromoths that are fairly closely related to butterflies okay. that are big and diurnal and really gaudy. You know what? It's funny because when you were asking Bill how to define a butterfly or moth, I, I would have used the term lepidopteran, but then it, the way my mind works is I start thinking, what's the 
closest relative to Lepidopterans? And I actually, I don't know off the top of my head, like what insect group? group? It's a group we'll probably see tonight. Uh, mm-hmm. You'd see a lot more if we're near water. It's the caddisflies. Oh, okay. And so caddisflies are the order Trichoptera, and Trichoptera means hairy-winged. Mm. And so basically picture a moth and change oh. the scales to hairs. <laughs> Those are some hungry barred owls. Out there. Or angry or happy. Yeah. <laughs> Territorial. Who cooks for you? <laughs> what, 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 what? <laughs> so I'm hoping that that Mike picked that yeah. up. I, I, I think there's no way it didn't. But Bill, could you explain the who cooks for you thing as long as I just said it? <laughs> so I imagine a lot of our listeners already know, but that is the, the barred owl. And their call sounds similar to uh, someone saying, who cooks for you, who cooks for you all, kind of that two phrase. But when you get two barred owls in the vicinity of each other, they just start making very distinctive <laughs> monkey calls. Right. Oh, the monkey call. Uh, um, what Jason was saying. What, 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 what? what? <laughs> that was cool to hear. Yeah, so they like trichopter too, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically uh-huh. picture a moth. Take the scales, replace them with hairs, and you've got Trichoptera, basically. Yeah, now that you mention uh, it, I mean, they definitely have a similarity to them. And so. forgive me if you said this, but what does Lepidoptera mean, then? Uh, scaly-winged. Scaly-winged. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, you did say that. And so, superficially, at a sheet, when you don't have them under a microscope, they do look really similar. And there's certain mm-hmm. characters you can use. Like, caddisflies always, always hold their wings roof-like over the body, and they have long antennae that stick straight out in front of them. Whereas most moths have some combination otherwise so they have all kinds of different ways they hold their wings and there's some that do hold their antennae way out straight but usually they're much much shorter than a typical caddisfly and i should back up a bit and say well of course moths and butterflies are insects and insects have three main body parts a head a thorax and an abdomen so the head has compound eyes with many tiny lenses and we'll, we'll probably talk about those more later and they also sometimes have additional eyes called ocelli and they're very small, single-lensed, and all they do is detect light or dark. They probably have some other function too, I don't know what it is, but especially the diurnal moths have really distinct ocelli. And some, some larvae just have ocelli, right? Technically quite different, it's called stemma. Oh. Uh, and so in a caterpillar, the eyes are actually down near the mouth. Mm-hmm. And so when you picture a caterpillar's head, it looks like they've got great big eyes, but those are actually just a big bulging head that's holding massive jaw muscles. Their Whoa. vision is right down near the mouth. It's just, a, it's like a little semicircle of little dots mm-hmm. uh, called stemma. So they've got terrible vision. Uh, <laughs> if you picture a caterpillar, it's got essentially about six or seven pixel vision on this side, six or seven <laughs> pixels on that side. Oh gosh. Now when you're a caterpillar just crawling along, it's no big deal. You're, you're feeling your way along. It's, it's not that important. You just want to eat. But yeah. if you notice inchworms, they, ever notice they bob their head before they land? That's because they can't see well. And so if you're on a twig, your terrible vision tells you it's light, 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 dark, 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 light, 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 light. <laughs> but if you bob your head, you can see exactly where the boundary of the oh. light and the dark is. And so any caterpillar that moves like an inchworm does that head bob thing, whereas other caterpillars do not. <laughs> and actually, that, that's a good segue into moths and butterflies have a four-parted life cycle. So we've been talking about the adults mostly so far. So the adults will be out flying now and the females will lay eggs. Those eggs hatch into a caterpillar or a larva. And that caterpillar is basically the feeding stage of the insect. Um, There's actually a lot of adult moths and butterflies that don't feed at all as adults. So it's basically eating and growing and eating and growing and eating huge amounts of food. 
and defecating a lot. So caterpillar poop, if you are in an outbreak, you'll actually hear it. It sounds like rain oh, yeah. around you. Yeah, I, I've been in an outbreak in Allegheny at one point, and it sounded like it was downpouring all night, but it was just caterpillar poop <laughs> raining down on our tents. Yeah, great yeah. nutrition for plants. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it also uh, killed a number of trees that year because it was a, uh, I, th I think it was a gypsy moth year. It yeah. was a huge one, yeah. Maybe like 20, uh, 2012 or 2013, something like that. Yeah, and, and to be totally PC, what was formerly called the gypsy moth is now called spongy moth. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't even, I, I, I've made a point in the past not to say the old name, and I can't even remember what, what we've heard people call it before, but spongy moth is new to me. I don't think I've heard that. Yeah, and it comes from, uh, the, the French common name for it is la spongieuse, and it refers to the egg masses, which kind of look like cotton candy, yeah. kind of spongy looking. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I saw a bunch while we were um, hiking up here. It was yeah. still light out. It's kind of like a yellowy, like a lightish or like a dull yellowy tan. or tan. Yeah, tan yeah. would be yeah. the better word for it. And we're, we're probably going to see some of those tonight, you think? It's hard to say. So I saw some males flying earlier and I find that when they first come out, they often don't come to lights right away <laughs> and it can be completely unpredictable. So last year there was a big outbreak near Plattsburgh and when I was there, I ran a light and while I had maybe, you know, a dozen at the light, during the day, I saw thousands. I could swat them out of the air, and they just were not coming to light. And I've had the other extreme at my place last year where I'd see very few around. But there was one night where I think I counted over 300 at my light. Wow. So they were just there and just came out at night, apparently. So I, I, you really can't predict when something's going to come to a light and when it's not going to. And, and you said they, the way you recognize it is because they fly a very particular way? They have a very spastic flight. And, mm. and there are a few other things that fly like that. But I happen to know that they're going to be common here. And I've caught them before. And, and that's what they're going to be. And as usual, I got distracted and off on a tangent. I didn't finish <laughs> talking about uh, moth life cycles. Oh, yeah. um, so egg, larva, then we get distracted. So larva eats and grows and eats and grows. And then eventually it turns into, a, oh, there's a green lacewing right on your wrist. Oh. Do you want to describe that guy? So we have about, what would you say, about three quarters of an inch long, slender green body mm -hmm. with these transparent wings that extend um, past the end of the abdomen. Mm -hmm. Like a third of the wing extends past the end of the abdomen that's yeah. really, really narrow, almost pencil-like. And it also kind of keeps the wings over its body like a tent almost, yeah. like a triangular shape. Um, and and it's uh, feeding on my sweatshirt. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and if you got a really close look, you'd see the eyes are often beautiful and golden. Oh, I, I'm almost seeing a little bit of a reflection of them. But. And what did you call this one again? It's a, it's a green lacewing. And there's several species here that look like that. Um, by the way, the common types of lacewings you get here are two different families, green lacewings and brown lacewings. Brown lacewings are always brownish. Green lacewings can be green, brown, yellow, pretty much any color, but they're usually green. And so they belong to a different insect order called Neuroptera, which means net-winged. Mm. And so you can see that fine net-like pattern mm. in the venation on it. And of course, again, I got sidetracked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so insect life cycles. Uh, so moth life cycles, egg, larva, pupa is that intermediate stage between the larva and the adult. And that's where old body parts are broken down, new body parts are developing. And eventually from that, the adult emerges. All right, when uh, I was teaching second grade, we did a butterfly unit where we would raise painted lady butterflies. And kids would always call the pupa stage, they would interchangeably use the terms cocoon and chrysalis. Mm -hmm. So this is how I explained it. Tell me how wrong it is, okay? Okay. So I would say they all make chrysalises, but some of them will make a cocoon around their chrysalis. 
so I can kind of well actually you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Push so, up your glasses. <laughs> so basically, chrysalis is a term that's just for butterflies. Okay. And most of our butterflies do not create any kind of cocoon. So like the painted lady chrysalis is naked. It's sitting there. Right. It doesn't have any silk around it. So if you want to be technical, you'd call the inner structure a pupa, which is accurate for both moths and butterflies. Okay. And then if it's got a silken covering over it, that's a cocoon. Would you consider when they build like a protective structure out of leaves or something like that, would that be a cocoon as well or? Potato, potato. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could go either way on that. Who says potato? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, Sorry. tomato, tomato. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Centimeter, uh, inch. All right. So I do remember telling them that butterflies don't make cocoons. Correct. So I was kind of half right, I guess. Yeah, so, I, and I was ready to say that, and I think, well, some skippers, they have a little silken shelter in a leaf. Does that count as a cocoon? I don't know. I'm not don't a butterfly guy. Good. And I know there's so rarely you can say this always okay. happens this way or this yeah. always happens. People want hard, fast rules, and it just doesn't Yeah, nature's happen. messy. Right, exactly. Um, and I should talk a little bit about diversity. So worldwide, there's about 160,000 species of moths that are described. As far as undescribed species, so new to science, is probably a lot more, and we really can't venture good guesses to how many more. <laughs> right. In New York State, I'm currently working with a colleague Hugh McGinnis, documenting the Lepidoptera diversity of New York State, and we've documented just over 3,000 species, and we expect 4,000 species plus. <laughs> as far as native versus non-native, <clears throat> one of the risks of doing mothing is you get an insect in your throat. <laughs> but is this a, um, do you know those drain flies? Doesn't this look kind of like one? There's a reason for that, because that's exactly what it is. Oh, it is a drain fly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But this would be one that doesn't live in drains. Mm. Yeah, it looks different. It's, <laughs> it's a bit smaller, it seems. So what's interesting with the drain flies, they're common little flies. They're also called moth flies, because mm -hmm. uh, they kind of look like a little moth. Oh, I think they totally look like a moth completely. But uh, one of the more common ones you get indoors in drains where they feed on bacterial sludge is called clogmia, which is one of my favorite. Clogmia. <laughs> wow. And it's kind of, they kind of look cool because uh, when they're resting, how do you describe, because I swear it's different from like what a housefly does, you yes, know? Yes, absolutely. So a housefly is resting its wings over its back in the mm -hmm. same format or the same direction, but they're closer together. With mm -hmm. the moth flies, they're broader wings, first of all, and they're splayed out more. Huh. More like a moth. Yeah. So there we go. We talked about a fly, but it's very moth-like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and as far as native versus non-native species in New York goes, we actually have a pretty high number of non-native species hmm. being close to the port of New York and New Jersey and the St. Lawrence Seaway. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's about 5% of our fauna that's hmm. not native. That's not too bad. Yeah, but it's increasing every day. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Should we go and have a look at the sheet? Because yeah, I do oh, see yeah. there's moths there. Oh, yeah, i got to throw those special glasses on. So describe for the audience the, the glasses that you gave us. What is this about? So what I've given everyone are just UV goggles because the lights that we've got here put out a lot of UV light and our eyes don't pick up UV light very well. So your eyes think it's really dark and so your pupils dilate and let all that UV light in oh. to fry the back of your eye. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Yikes. So this will save your eyes a bit. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> And so the difference, if we were using the mercury vapor light that I use at home uh, most often, there you've got a lot of visible light, <laughs> so your eyes think it's bright, so it's not quite as dangerous. And here's the spongy moth. There's some males right there. <laughs> and so to describe those, they're kind of, they have a triangular profile. They're probably just under an inch in length. The males have great big fuzzy antennae, uh, what we call bipectinate. 
And whenever you see a moth with fuzzy antenna, what you can tell is that they use their sense of smell. Mm. So the females will produce a pheromone and the males will fly around until they find them. Oh, and we have mating crane flies. <laughs> yep. not, not, not the goal, but... Uh... And one watching. <laughs> one perv. No, they, they took off. They didn't like them. We also have some interesting moths. There's a bunch of these. You usually don't see too many of these. These are slug moths. And they're called slug moths because the caterpillars have these really stumpy legs and they move just like a slug. And this one's called Tortricidia fluxuosa. It probably has a common name, but it's one of the slug moths, uh, is mm. what I can say. I usually just see one or two at a light, but I can see there's at least five or six, maybe I, seven. I never knew that they were called slug moths, and it's definitely yeah. one that I've seen before. I never knew what to call it, though. Yeah, and some of them actually have venomous spines. This particular species doesn't. It's really hard. It's like got the texture of a plastic bead. Whoa. Uh, and then the soft bits are underneath. That's cool. <laughs> so and I do have to, to say, folks, that we have like dozens of insects all over this sheet and they're all flying around and um, you and me <laughs> yeah right they're, there's land getting them in her face yeah they're landing on us so. <laughs> mine's going up my shirt <laughs> <laughs> when you go to bed you'll have some company come out <laughs> <laughs> so who do we have over here is that another spongy so one? that's a non-native one as well so the spongy moth's not native that one is called the large yellow underwing Oh, now, okay. it's actually not a true underwing. It's completely unrelated. It's a different family. <laughs> it's a European type of cutworm. The caterpillars are generalists on very slow plants, and they're actually easy to find midwinter. If you get a good warm day midwinter, especially with some freezing rain, the caterpillars, for whatever reason, come out and walk out on top of the snow. And they're about as, as thick as my pinky, so they're pretty big caterpillars. Oh, wow. But if we look at it, so right now, it's just, what, over an inch long? Yeah. And sort of drab brown, just a few little dark markings on it. And if I give it a little tap, you're going to see orange and black hindwings. Oh. You saw a little flash when yep, it jumped yep, off yep. the sheet. I think it's on me now. Yep. Mm -hmm. It likes the mic. Yeah. Um, we also have some forest tent caterpillar, and I think eastern tent caterpillar here too. So two different types of tent caterpillar. Mm -hmm. So eastern tent caterpillar produces a tent which is where it gets the name from, mm -hmm. of silk. So the larvae live in there. It protects them from a lot of predators. It also helps them thermoregulate. So they can actually position themselves on the tent to catch the morning sun to warm up. Now, am I confusing them with like a webworm? Or are they the ones that have like a dance rave when you uh, make noise around them? Because <laughs> one, one of them, like in their tents, they'll like move around a ton. Well, oh, okay. A lot of them will do that. Um, yeah. Because typically if they've got a tent, they've also got defensive hairs. Mm. So with tent caterpillars, I don't know if they do that. I think fall webworm will do that. Yeah, maybe um, that's what I'm thinking of. But it's sort of an intimidation thing so that you've got these moving, urticating hairs. So you want to think twice about attacking them. <laughs> and this, the tent caterpillars typically make their tents in the spring, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's spring, usually on cherry, yeah. and it's right in the crotches of branches. Uh, so like picture an upside down tent. Fall webworm takes a whole branch and, they, and covers the whole thing. So you get a big lob on the end. Um, most often they're seen on things like ash. And they stick out very well. If you do um, Christmas bird counts, I've tried to turn so many of those into shrikes over the years. As you see off in the distance, the very top of some yep. ash tree will have a, a remnants of a nest. And it looks sits like a nice little shrike there. But right. of course, it's, it's that species. Now, the other tent caterpillar here, the forest tent caterpillar, doesn't produce a tent at all. They sort of live singly, and then they molt together on a big, what's called a molting pad. And molting is shedding their skin. Hmm. So they set up this big silken pad on a tree trunk. They all get together, they molt, and then they all, all go their separate ways. Hmm. 
But yeah, they don't produce anything beyond that. Are, are they called a tent caterpillar because they're so closely related to the eastern tent? Or is yeah. it just a... Okay. Yeah. That's exactly it. They're the same genus, so they're very closely related. They're actually quite similar in appearance too, both the adult and the larvae. But actually, what's really neat, the larvae of the forest tent caterpillar, if you look up pictures of it online, on the back, it looks like little keyhole shapes. Um, hmm. Whereas the eastern tent caterpillar, it's a straight line. The other thing that was pointed out to me a few years ago is that the keyhole shapes, if you turn the caterpillar upside down, look like little penguins. <laughs> it's really quite distinct. So I, I really recommend looking up because it does look like little tiny penguins all lined up there. <laughs> I'll just check out the back of the sheet. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's lots back here. Oh, we haven't seen this one yet. No. But this, this is a really a popular one. I feel like I, I see it like every time. So I also I, think it's I really do like talking about that showy. one because yeah. uh, it's a choice edible. Oh, what? really? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's a choice edible. So <laughs> what we're looking at here, the name sounds disgusting, Macaria pustularia, oh. the lesser maple spanworm. And I would never advise people to eat insects because you never know what you're allergic to, but uh-huh. uh, that is one of my favorite to eat. It's got oh, a wow. mild peanut buttery taste. <laughs> wow. So it's called a worm and has pus in the name, but it yes. tastes like peanut butter a little <laughs> yeah. bit. And say the name of that one again. Uh, Macaria pustularia, the lesser maple spanworm. Can wow. we get Steve to eat one right now? I'm not going to eat one. No? And so so that is one of the inchworms, as is that one and that one. So we've got a variety of inchworms here. So the one we were just talking about, when it's landed, it's flattened out its body. It's almost pure white, but it's got these little... Brown um, specks. Little brown specks along the... Uh, leading edge of the wing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a Before really showy one. It's you know, It kind of stands out how white it is. Like white on the white sheet, you wouldn't think it stands out, but it does. It's only about an inch long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from wingtip to wingtip, right? Yeah, and when I'm identifying moths, um, what moth people tell you is you sort of go by gestalt. They just have a look <laughs> to them. Uh-huh. So like intra moths usually look like this. They've got big broad wings and a slender body. Those are interims. Obviously very different than slug moth, which have stout wings. Mm-hmm. And then leaf roller moths, the tortrices, the ones I'm interested in, generally have this sort of bell look shape to them and are quite small. The wings are held fairly roof-like, so they do sort of stick out in that way. And then resting posture can be useful too. So here's one that looks like it's doing push-ups. <laughs> and this one's called the drab condylolomia, which is not really much of an English name. Uh, condylolomia participalis. It likes feeding on plants that are related to Myrica. So the Myrica family, so sweet fern. There's a bunch of sweet mm. fern nearby here. That's probably what it's feeding on. Uh, also feeds on Myrica. Oh, and then we've got a little twirler moth. Oh, that one's got a cool design on it. Twirler moths, that's the family Gelichiidae, and it's actually a really difficult group as far as identifying (laughs) things as species, except that one. That's a pretty easy one. Um, I'm almost certain this one's called Dicomeris flavicostella, which probably has a common name. Um, (laughs) But we'll call it one of the twirler moths for now. And they're called twirler moths because of a behavior that a lot of them do, not this one, but... A bunch of the other ones, when they land on a leaf during the day, they spin around on the spot. They sort of huh. twirl around. And someone asked me recently why they do that. And I've never read anything that suggests why they do that. But my best guess, after thinking about it for a while, is that a lot of species have a fake head on their butt. Right. And mm-hmm. so when they're trying to confuse a predator, they land, they spin around, so you can't tell which end is the head end. Mm-hmm. That's my complete guess there. I, don't, I haven't seen anything published on that. So it's probably completely wrong. We didn't describe what this twirler moth looks like. I've been even thinking about how I I would describe it. (laughs) So Um, it's small. Yeah. What would you say? Maybe half an inch? 
Yeah, something like that. Uh, quarter a inch. little bit less. Quarter yeah. inch. Yeah. Oh, a centimeter. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to use the metric system. <laughs> yeah, so I, I still, I'm trying we'll to grasp back inches. And I haven't been in the US long enough. But the pattern is, uh, the, the pattern's hard to describe. Yes, I mean, describe the wings because they're not, you know, what I would typically think of when I when I see a, a moth mm-hmm. at rest. The four wings are pretty narrowly triangular. Mm-hmm. They overlap each other, so it's flat over the back. So it has, it's sort of shaped like an arrowhead almost. Yeah, that's oh, a good way that's to describe a good it. Way there you go. Say, yeah. um, and then the pattern is really striking. So it's jet black, except the leading edge of each forewing is sort of cream with a big tooth on the outer third. Mm-hmm. It kind and of then, juts in a little bit. And then as far as identifying it to family, the character we look at for a lot of micromoths is the head structures. Mm. And so if you have a good close lateral view of it, you're going to see it has great big orange horns on it. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like slicked back over its head. Yeah, so they're upcurved labial oh, yeah. palps is a technical term. And hmm. so palps are mouth parts, and most of these moths have some sort of palps that are obvious, um, some more than others, but on that one, they're big and obvious, and that's hmm. a good character for Gelichiidae and a few other related families, the twirler moths and some of the related families. There's other characters you need a microscope for, but that's, that's the most useful one. The other character, hmm. and, and I can't believe I didn't talk about this before, but a lot of these moths have a proboscis, uh, so called proboscis, which they use for drinking fluids. This one has what we call scaly proboscis. So there's actually scales on the proboscis, whereas most <laughs> moths do not have that. Interesting. So maybe we should take a walk and check out the other light. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, I bet we'll probably have some similar species, but we'll probably see a bunch of different ones there. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, we've made it to the second net, and there are some different things here. Yeah, so we can see some similarities. There's lots of spongy moth here, just like the previous site. This one here is called a cloaked marvel. Oh, they have disappeared. Well, anyways, <laughs> that was a cloaked marvel. Mm-hmm. It's called that because there's one not very common form of it that has a beautiful white blotch in the center of the wing. Uh, and it's I point out because it's unusual in that the caterpillars actually feed on fungi. Most of these caterpillars are plant feeders. That one you'll find on various fleshy fungi, usually a little later in the summer. <laughs> but they'll eat anything with fungi on it. We also have a gray panthea. So this one is pretty big, so it's about the size of my thumb knuckle and grayish with some darker wavy gray lines. And it's a conifer feeder. Uh, I usually find the caterpillars on eastern white pine, which there's some right around us. And the caterpillar, basically, if you asked a four-year-old to design a caterpillar out of pipe cleaners, it's what this caterpillar looks like. It's got sloppy, messy hairs scattered about and it just looks like a poor attempt to make a caterpillar. <laughs> oh, here's an, actually another neat one. This is another fungus feeding one. So this is really beautiful, but you gotta get close up to it. I'm being attacked by moths. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- it is a cool one. <coughs> I just inhaled one there. <laughs> so this one's called Epicalima. And this is a species where the caterpillars live under the bark of dead trees and hmm. feed on fungi. And so if you burn firewood, you often get a large number of those indoors uh, in the middle of winter. Oh, and a scorpion fly. (laughs) So scorpion flies are a weird order. They're the order Mycoptera. And if you look at it in lateral view, you'll see the males have a great big genitalia that they curl up over the back that look like a scorpion's tail. And then they also have this crazy long snout that looks like basically you stuck a giant straw in its face. (laughs) The wings are sort of long and skinny and held up kind of to the side. <coughs> and I'm enjoying inhaling moss. <coughs> Remember, don't do moths, kids. <laughs> I'm a moth head. <laughs> and then there's the standard woolly bear. So right oh. here, 
Isabella moth? Yeah, Isabella tiger moth is the common name of the adult. So the caterpillar is mm. called the woolly bear. Orange in the middle, black on both ends. They're really good for predicting how long <laughs> winter is going to be or something? It, it's good at predicting the previous winter. Oh, the previous winter. That's what it is. <laughs> um, you can find different bandwidths on the caterpillars on the same day. So it's, it's <laughs> not mm-hmm. a predictor of the upcoming winter. But it is a common tale. And I've done too many media interviews about that. <laughs> And Sorry for bringing back those memories. People want it to be true. <laughs> they really do, and they get quite yeah. hostile when you tell them otherwise. Just, yeah. How funny of an answer would it have been to be like, oh, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> like, <they're>, what? <laughs> so there's a moth down here, I'll point out. That one is called the unicorn prominent. It r- looks kind of like a broken stubby twig as yeah. an adult. But if you get a close look, it's got some little washes of pinkish and greenish and blackish on it. Hmm. It's called a unicorn prominent because the caterpillars have this gigantic horn that sticks out on their thorax and it looks kind of like a unicorn horn. And the reason why it's got this horn is that that whole segment of the body has this gigantic gland that secretes formic acid. So if you pop one of the caterpillars in your mouth, it's going to burn. Whoa. (laughs) They're quite well defended. And uh, there's a lot of moths called prominence, right? Yeah, it's, it's not a huge family. There's lots in the tropics. Uh, but here it's probably about 40 or 50 species in New York State. Okay. Oh, and there's the large lace border sitting nice. Oh, yep. yep. Oh, not anymore. Oh, it doesn't like to be pointed out. We're going to talk about him eventually. Yeah, so, okay. Now it's <laughs> sitting still. Don't point at it. It doesn't uh-huh, like that. Uh-huh. It's rude. Um, the large lace border. So it's another one of the intra moths. So a slender body, big broad wings. The wings are held very flat out at rest and wide open. And it's called large lace border because it's sort of white, but it's got this sort of dark grayish lace border to mm-hmm both wings and now while it kind of looks pretty distinct on the sheet here when they're out during the daytime they rest on tops of leaves and they Mm -hmm. look just like washed out bird poop and bird poop is a very common strategy that moths use to camouflage themselves both adults and larvae i'm gonna walk these guys back to the car no No? and at this point it was after 10 p.m well past bedtime for my daughter but as she and my wife said their thank yous and goodbyes to jason the subject of hummingbird moths came up. What's the deal? <laughs> do you, what do they, I mean, no, no, no. get them in the garden. I think we yeah. need you to say it like Jerry said. No, I will not. <laughs> so hummingbird moths are a type of sphinx moth, Oh, okay. uh, also called hawk moths. Mm-hmm. And our species around here are diurnal, so they come out during the day. Oh. We have yep. four species in New York, <laughs> and some of them look just like a hummingbird in flight, and some look like bumblebees in flight. Mm-hmm. All, all of our species are in the genus Hemeris, the caterpillars are a type of hornworm, so the okay. big, thick caterpillar with a horn at the end. We have two common ones here in the Finger Lakes. We've got hummingbird clearwing and snowberry clearwing. Hmm. Hummingbird clearwing, I think, is on a bunch of viburnums and relatives, if, okay. I, remember, if I remember correctly. Uh, maybe honeysuckles, too. And then snowberry clearwing is on snowberries. <laughs> we get them in our butterfly garden. Right. Yeah. Remember what I, day I we're on? Uh-huh. Well, he's talking about the larva. Oh, yeah, right. oh okay. Mm. okay. Yeah, and the adults visit all kinds of different flowers. Oh, Any okay. sort of tubular flower that's yeah. sort of open. Hornworms attack, like, <coughs> tomato plants and stuff too, right? Or there, is that a different... There are two types that feed on tomatoes. Okay. Uh, tomato hornworm and tobacco hornworm. So they're same family as hummingbird clearwings, but uh, different subfamilies. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> so hummingbird clearwing, and then the other one was snow... Snowberry clearwing. Snowberry yeah. clearwing. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. The other two species in New York State are quite rare. Uh, mm. One slender clearwing. Mostly in the Adirondacks and nearby. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, a blueberry feeder. I get it in blueberry oh. barrens. Mm-hmm. 
and it looks pretty similar to um, Snowberry Clearing. And then there's one that's nearly identical to Snowberry Clearing. Uh, it doesn't have a common name yet, I don't think, because um, it was just described recently, called Himeris ethra, and it feeds on uh, bush honeysuckle, so Dervilla hmm. lanicera, and it's more common as you go north. So in Maine, it's quite common, the larvae, and, and in, in Ontario, I've seen it quite commonly. I've not seen it down here, but there are records for the Adirondacks for that one as well. Hmm. Okay. Okay. okay, I'm going to so take down. Gonna... And with our questions about hummingbird moths answered, my wife and daughter departed, leaving Steve, Jason, and myself to continue exploring what was coming into the lights. So I saw, you saw a carrion beetle there. Oh, is that what that was? Um, that was mm. carrion beetle necrophorus. I'm gonna see if it's on the other side. So carrion beetles obviously feed on carrion. Uh, the genus necrophorus, they're, they're a group called the burying beetles. And so what they do, oh, ooh, yummy moth. Um, <laughs> they will find a carcass, a, a mated pair, and they will, if it's a small carcass, they'll bury it underground to avoid <laughs> competition from flies because flies usually get their oh here it's back oh yep yeah. oh and actually what does he got has he got something no no oh he's, dead. he's just covered in mites <gasps> it's yeah. right i've heard look, of look this here. look at here so if you look laterally on this you okay. see a whole bunch of mites those mites hitchhike on it see them all oh yeah and so what it does the 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 pair will bury the the carcass and then these mites drop off and they feast on fly eggs and they get rid of the competition. And so you can see, oh, it's even underneath it, there's tons of mites on it. And they're one of the few insects that actually take care of their young. So what they'll do is the pair will start to chew up the decaying carcass and basically create a mush for the babies to feed on. <laughs> and make baby food. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, I think we saw one of our only green ones. It was almost like a nice pale oh, on the other green side. on the other side. A small green one. These guys? Oh, yeah. Yep. D- well, now oh, there's, there's two. Oh, three. Yeah, so that is an emerald. And emeralds, this particular genus, Nemoria, the caterpillars, I, I think these ones feed on blueberries and really the plants. I could be wrong on that. <laughs> emeralds are called that because they are brilliant green. And this might be the red fronted emerald, which has a pink border to the wings. <laughs> Picking up a lot of wing beats on the mic at this point. And over here, this is not a common moth. This is a lichen moth. This is a scarlet lichen moth. Oh, wow. Or actually, oh. no, sorry, that's a painted lichen moth. That's um, cool. So how would you describe that guy? Oh, gosh. Orange near the head. The wings were orange, but they had these big black spots on that almost take up the entire wing. They flew away. Yeah, and so it's something that's obviously quite toxic and they probably sequester those toxins from lichens. There's not a lot of things that eat lichens because they produce all these really nasty chemicals. Really? And those ones feed on various, I think that one's on folios lichens on tree trunks, so the kinds that look kind of leafy. And there's other ones that feed more on fruticose lichens, so things like uh, reindeer moss and things like that. Mm -hmm. Here's another handsome prominent moth. This one's the genus Detana. Detana I don't know which particular one this is. They're kind of difficult to identify. The larvae are really quite distinct, typically stripy and kind of hairy, and they're usually in big groups. And when you disturb them, they raise both their head and butt in a really characteristic manner, looking like a like a very square-shaped U. And they do it rhythmically, so it's really quite dramatic to see. I had someone submit photos of that behavior, and they were convinced that it was a new cell tower causing this mutation in caterpillars. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I told them, well, that's what they you do. You told them they were right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here's one called a jack pine budworm. 
And with a lot of conifer feeders, you'll find the caterpillars are usually green and stripy, but a lot of the adults sort of look like this mottled orange pattern. And what this kind of looks like in nature is the, the male cones of conifers. So it's really complex pattern. And this pattern is convergent in a whole lot of conifer feeding moths that are about that size. <laughs> Here's another one here. So it's called a jack pine budworm. Historically, this is something that was most common on jack pine, and there's no jack pine anywhere near here. But in more recent years, it's been feeding on eastern white pine more commonly, and has become more common uh, down in this part of New York. Although it was found in other parts further south, probably feeding on other hard pines. But yeah, it seems to have broadened its, its diet. <laughs> and a few other cool things that are here. So we've got princess wasps, also called like Newman wasps. So here's one right here. Did you say Icky Newman? Ick Newman. Ick yeah. Newman. Yeah. Here's another I've, one. I've heard of that for sure. These are parasitoids, so different than a parasite in that they kill their host in the end. Both of the. Oh, here's more impressive. Look at the crazy ovipositor on that oh, one. Oh, wow. It's longer uh, than the body. So, picture uh, we got various types of wasps here long, gangly legs, wings held over the back, and some of them have a crazy uh, butt dagger. Um, <laughs> an great. ovipositor. Mm -hmm. Butt dagger. And typically for ones with really young ovipositors, like this one, it's longer than the rest of its body. Um, with ones like that, they're either boring inside wood, or if you find some caterpillars that roll a leaf into a nice tight cone, they can actually go in after their, their prey like that, uh, with that yeah. long butt dagger. Other ones, it's much more subtle, but that is still a princess wasp or ichneumon. <laughs> ichneumon wasp is the proper name in North America. The Japanese common name for it is princess wasp, which I think is <laughs> much more descriptive and, and interesting. So I, oh. I try to popularize princess wasp, and I actually have princess wasp named after me. What? Oh, really? Yeah, there is an Ophion Dombrowskii. Wow. Who named it? A colleague of mine, a former office mate of mine. Wow. She worked on these wasps that are nocturnal, come to moth light, so of course I'd get tons. <laughs> and I'd always bring her some from, from my, my field trips, and I'd always throw in something else to be annoying to make <laughs> her actually work for it. Uh -huh. And so I'd throw in moths, or wasps like Braconids or flies or whatever just to be annoying. Uh -huh. And this one very unproductive trip I did to Saskatchewan, where I had, I think, four moths the whole trip. It was absolutely oh, brutal. Geez. But I, I collected a bunch of princess wasps, and, and the genus she's working on was Ophion. And Ophion is always orange or yellowish. That, that's, that's, that's what they are. So I threw in some of those, and then there was a black one. So I was like, yeah, throw that in. You know, black princess wasp. Turns out it was the first black Ophion for North America. And Whoa. So she named it after me for, for being annoying, basically. <laughs> cool. But it's only known from a single specimen, so I've, I've yet to see another one. Found in a cow pasture in Saskatchewan. <laughs> so, because I like talking about moth genitalia, i got to talk about this very unimpressive-looking moth. This is one called the oblique-banded leaf roller, which normally has oblique bands to it, but this one has absolutely no pattern to it at all. Now, moth genitalia, if you talk to anybody that identifies moths for a living, we'll talk your ear off about genitalia because they're really complicated structures in both the males and the females. And the males often have really neat structures to basically... <coughs> oh, there he goes. One less moth in the rope. <coughs> wow. Um, and in this particular species, the reproductive tract of the female looks like a human intestine. It's this long, windy oh. thing. And for the male to be able to deposit sperm where it needs to go, he needs a ridiculous phallus. <laughs> and so 
the phallus itself is actually pretty short in this, but it everts this structure. So basically, if you pictured like, if I had a, a rubber glove in my hand and then inflated it, oh. pictured that, but like a long silly snake, basically. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And in this species, its phallus everts to three times as long as his body. Whoa. And it's absolutely crazy to match that the the female's reproductive system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, very unimpressive looking moth, but impressive genitalia. So we're kind of talking and we realized that we hadn't talked about why moths are even attracted to light in the first place. Yeah, so basically not all moths come to light. There's a lot that are flying by or a lot that are fly only during the day, but we do have a good selection here. It's not just moths, we're getting flies and beetles and wasps. Mm-hmm. But the short answer is we really don't know. Um, and the theory I used to like was that they use light to navigate, so the moon, and then they get confused by it. But I've, I've since come across a, a theory I like a lot better uh, that's come out of some German research that suggests that they actually get blinded by the light. Oh. And as an analogy, you and I have pretty decent night vision. Uh, we've got different cells in the back of our eyes. We've got rod cells and cone cells. And the cone cells are good in high light, and they pick up color. But at night, those shut down, and our rod cells take over, and they only see in black and white, and they're good in low light conditions. But if you've got your night vision going, you've been out in the dark, and you're navigating successfully, and I shine a flashlight in your eye, (laughs) I've killed your night vision. You've, You've lost it for about 20 minutes, and you're essentially blinded. And so as a moth flying around, if you get close enough to this light, I like to think of it as like an event horizon. You get close enough where you've lost your night vision. Are you going to fly off in the dark? <laughs> or are you going to go rest somewhere until you sort things out? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a more viable theory in my, in, in my personal opinion. Uh, and it seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like if you use a really, really bright light, like there's some ridiculously powerful lights that people use. Um, the micros don't even get anywhere near the light. They stop way out there on neighboring trees and things like that. So some people will actually cycle between using a bright light and a dim light. Yeah. Um, and even like right here, you'll see on the neighboring trees, there are some moths sitting that aren't oh, yeah. that close. I, I've been noticing them in the grass below and, and the trees and branches around there and on the strings and on my mic and everything. On so. your face. And yeah. <laughs> That's often where the in, good stuff is. In my is, pockets, up my shorts. Yeah. <laughs> So I think this is a good place to wrap up. And Jason, we just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for giving us this this day, mm-hmm. which I don't know about you, Steve, but I'm going to remember this always. Oh, yeah. Um, everything we got to see today, everything that you've shared with us, you've just been so generous with your time. Well, everything that we saw yesterday and now <laughs> this morning. That's true. Because it's, it's about 12. 20 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> but for the listeners out there, where can they go to find out more about your work? So there's a bunch of different ways. So I, I'm not too active on social media anymore. The whole racism thing bothers me a bit. <laughs> oh. But I do have a Facebook page. There is a Cornell University Insect Collection Facebook page. We actually have students hired to man other social media items. So we've got a TikTok that's very popular, oh, wow. Instagram, and Twitter. So you can find the Cornell University Insect Collection on all those platforms. And we regularly post stuff on there, less so on Facebook. That's because that's I'm in, I'm in charge of that one. <laughs> um, but I also have a lab website. If you Google Jason Dombrowski or JasonDombrowski.com, you'll find it. And I advertise various public events that I do. 
I also want to encourage people, if you're in the Finger Lakes region, check out the Museum of the Earth. We've got an exhibit there going on through uh, December of 2022. And it's really the cream of the crop of the collection on display there. So it's really well worth seeing. And there's also a website for it. And then finally, if you're also in the Ithaca area in sort of late October-ish, we haven't picked a solid date yet, we have Insectapalooza, which is a very popular event put on by the Department of Entomology at Cornell. And basically that's where every lab in the entomology department and some other related departments that cover something to do with insects displays their research. And so you get to see all kinds of really cool uh, research in action and cool study organisms. We also bring out about 50 drawers from the actual collection and talk about them and show things on the big screen that are really tiny and whatnot. So it's, it's well worth seeing. It's very popular. We usually get several thousand people at it. That sounds so cool. I know I'm coming. And, yeah. and that will be advertised on the department website and probably on all our social medias as well. Great. Well, it's going to take us a little while to edit this all together <laughs> because there's just so much great stuff yeah. to share. This will definitely edit out be... the uh, people coughing on moths. <laughs> We've never had to do that before. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you again, and we hope to have you on again sometime in the future. Absolutely. It'd be great fun. All mm-hmm. right. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time. Yep. See you guys. And with that, our adventure came to an end. I know I can speak for Steve when I say we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Of course, we need to say thank you again to Jason for sharing so much of his time and expertise. Visit our website, thefieldguidespodcast.com, for the links to all the websites and the social media feeds Jason mentioned, including their Insectapalooza celebration. The 2022 event has already passed, but you can mark your calendars for October 2023. You can also visit the episode page for the pictures and videos that go with this episode, as well as our social media feeds to see more images from our tour and our mothing trip. We also want to give a big thank you to our patrons for making this episode a reality. We appreciate each and every one of you, and we want to shout out some gratitude to our new patrons. Measure and Principal, JJ Cathy, Nikki Diaz, Frogeria Pepeyonoidea, Stephen Martin, Outside Chronicles, and Nona CL3. As always, stick around to the very end of the episode, where, as a special thank you, Violet will read out the names of our top patrons. Thank you as well to Gumleaf USA for their continuing support of our show. Gumleaf USA offers Wellington-style natural rubber boots for men and women, and patrons of the show receive a special offer code for free shipping on any Gumleaf USA order. Check out a link to Gumleaf USA in our episode notes. Finally, We want to thank Walden Heights Nursery and Orchard for their recent support of the podcast. Based in Walden Heights, Vermont, they are a certified organic farm specializing in cold-hardy growing that supplies fruit to consumers, plants for those who want to grow their own fruit, help and advice on organic growing methods, and a place to see how it is done. Check out a link to them on the episode notes. Please don't forget to visit us on social media, leave a review for our show wherever you get your podcasts, and send us any episode ideas to thefieldguides at gmail.com. And with that, Steve and I wish you a happy ending to 2022 and remind all you parents out there, please get your kids outside. Let them get muddy and dirty and or snowy and let them flip over rocks and logs. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. And as promised, here is Violet with this episode's top patrons. Alyssa, Eric, the Hebranks, Adam, Mary, Diane, Jessica, Callie, Ken, Orange Julianne, Sean, we named the dog Indy, Dwayne, Jonathan A., Andrew, Ben C., Bethany, Brandon, Bruce, 
Doodle Dude 82, Esther, Helen, Jake, Jane, Jeff, John, Judy, Kelly, Quixote, MD, Mark V, Max D, Melissa in Dusty Arizona, Nathan, Outside Chronicles, Rob M, Robert P, Sarah, Hannah. On behalf of Steve, we want to say thank you so much to all of our patrons and especially the people on our list. You make our podcast possible. Thank you so much. Uh, starting to fly up my shorts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you imbecile. <laughs>